Hi, this is Kira Buckland, voice actress for some of your favorite anime and video games. Please enjoy this episode of the Anna Monday podcast, a randomized anime experience. Hello, and welcome to the Annie Monday Podcast. My name is Colin Hemphill. And I'm Kayla Hemphill. On our show, we roll the virtual dice and must watch a randomly selected anime title. Thanks for joining. Hello, hello. Hopefully no robot voices this week. Yeah, here's hoping. But still much talk of robots. <laughs> yes. On our previous episode, we hit the random button and achieved perfect synchronization with a new partner called Darling in the Franks. Darling in the Franks is an original 24-episode anime series released in 2018. It was co-produced by A1 Pictures and Trigger, with additional animation support from Cloverworks, which I believe is a subsidiary of A1 Pictures. And they released an 8-volume manga adaptation alongside the anime. And that's really about all there is to it. Uh, of that anime series, we watched the first four episodes on Crunchyroll. And uh, I think with that, Kayla, would you like to give us a synopsis? When humanity is threatened by ferocious monsters, society depends on children trained to pilot battle robots called Franks. When a mysterious and skilled pilot named Zero Two meets a boy named Hero, the world might finally have the heroes they desperately need. Well, it might be worth starting off with an unusual content warning for us. Yes. So our show is typically family-friendly. We don't use rough language and don't plan to in the future. But uh, even when we get a real raunchy show that we have to watch, uh, the podcast tends to be fairly tame in those cases. Uh, But this one might be worth offering a, a mild parental warning of sorts. Uh, because there is a lot of sexual imagery in Darling and the Franks uh, that makes this one a little difficult to talk about, uh, and especially to offer like honest opinions and discussions about the show without kind of describing it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if your kids are of age to maybe comprehend what we're talking about, mm-hmm. that could be weird. Yes. But that's on you. Yes. So. <laughs> okay, so... I know writing a synopsis for this show was challenging Mm -hmm. because there's a whole lot going on in four episodes. Yes. It seems very complex and nuanced. Yes. And uh, a lot of character kind of stuff kind of wrapped up in all of that. So the plot is pretty generic, like post-apocalypse, you know, kaiju. Mm Mm-hmm. Big mechs to fight them, Mm -hmm. children raised to, you know, pilot the robots and that kind of stuff. You know, average stuff. Uh, And I guess some of the trappings around that are other tropes you see in this kind of anime. Like they live in big cities that are like mobile fortresses that are like in a big bubble kind of Mm -hmm. sphere thing. Uh, In this case, they um, the creatures are called the Klaxosaurs. Yeah. great name dinosaur vibes for sure yeah and um there are also some hints that like the children are created somehow or bred or manufactured in some way it's it's a little unclear yeah i think they tried to do away with the trope of either abusive parents Mm -hmm. like what you see in evangelion or like children ripped away from parents right they're trying to produce a acceptable way for parents to not be involved in these children's lives right and so all the children that we meet are for all intents and purposes orphans but not i I mean they didn't lose their parents they just didn't have them to begin with they are each other's family the only family they've ever known except Mm -hmm. for this mysterious person that we've not yet met but we've heard a lot about named papa right which is weird yeah for sure 
Uh, and the, the naming conventions don't stop there. Uh, the children are referred to as parasites. Mm-hmm. And uh, starting off with the sexual illusions right away, the boys are called the stamen and the girls are called pistols. Yep. And uh, as that kind of implies, they pilot these in like male-female pairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also kind of the like broad shadowy organization that runs the whole thing called APE. I don't even know if I'd call it shadowy because they were out in front during a, they had a sort of presenting ceremony of yeah. the parasites to what seemed like the local community could be at all of humanity. Kind of hard to tell. Yeah. Well, they said there's multiple cities. So this local. Right. Yeah, I think Squad 13, which is the one that kind of these kids are part of, is like presiding over this mobile city. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's multiple squads per city or whatever, but uh, yeah, APE is kind of like responsible for the defense kind of aspect of the city. Yeah, there's sort of like a high council that makes the decisions for this. But the shadowy part is in occasional scenes that we see, there's like this room of dudes sitting around in chairs. It looks like the throne room from Kingdom Hearts 2, <laughs> where all the organization members are sitting on not equal uh -huh. thrones. And that's exactly what this scene looks like. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> uh, it, it also certainly has like direct kind of uh, you know, visual parallels with Sele from mm -hmm. Evangelion. Yeah. In the like council chamber with literally, they call them, I think, the seven sages, mm -hmm. and they're seen as like deities in this world organization, whatever right. thing. Uh, it's, you know, a, a lot of that is stuff that we've seen in this type of mech anime. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, it, it certainly has its its own kind of unique qualities as well, um, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into some of those. Uh, but like I said, this show specifically follows a group called Squad 13. And uh, it seems like in most squads, uh, if not all of them, the children are, are provided a number, which is their identifier. Um, but in this case, the protagonist is known for like being good at coming up with human kind of names mm -hmm. for um, the people that he's around. And so we do have like more standardized kind of names for each of these characters. Which seems to be unusual. They do have interactions with adults who have names. It seems to be that only these children have numbers instead of names. And for some reason, who's ever in charge of raising these kids, they really put an effort into keeping certain societal norms away from the kids. You see this as a theme over and over again, that they don't know generic sort of societal yes. <laughs> things like they don't know social things yeah and... like being called name you know being called a name and not a number is like a normal thing they don't know like normal social interactions they definitely don't know anything romantic whatsoever but they're kept in this weird they call it a bird cage it's this weird sort of house with this like gardeny area and like this sort of lake. They're kind of designed to be put in like a bygone era because the cities look totally different, but they're not given access to the cities. Right. And that's that's some of the things that I I don't quite understand and and will probably be unpacked more is like, you know, it's sort of a shadowy organization with this front of appearing like, you know, we're for the defense of the city and we respect and honor these kids who are doing this thing and, and everything. 
And there's like indication that they have some free will, like they're allowed to willingly leave, it seems, to a certain degree. Well, that's hard to say. We see this with Hero, who's kind of presented in the first four episodes as being one of two of the main protagonists. And he's been given a choice whether he can stay or he can go back to the orphanage because he has failed in his ability to become a parasite. And I don't know that that choice would be given to the ones who didn't fail. Right. I think they're sort of like, well, maybe this could still work out. You're still an investment. We could still use you for something. You can't go back to society. Right. So you can choose, you know, this place that you know or this other place that you know, but you can't go join the rest of humanity. Yeah. And even in Hero's case... Like, we don't know the intentions of the organization, so does, yeah, you're free to leave mean (laughs) we'll send you off, like, properly, Mm. Uh, you know, whatever that means to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are are things we don't really know yet. Um, I guess, uh, do we have anything specifically about Hero we want to talk about? I, before I go into his personality a little bit, I think... Something that I'm seeing in the story as it is focusing on him is I don't know that he's actually going to be the only protagonist. This really looks like it's kind of set up as a group, sort of a a group cast. And we see, we meet Hero right after he's having an identity crisis. So we meet him after he has failed the test to become a parasite and he's made the decision to leave but that's all he was raised to do and it's kind of hinted that he is seen as like this prodigy child for reasons we don't know why he's considered a prodigy because he failed the test but he's been lifted up his whole life and he's failed this test so he is just in the middle of not knowing who he is or who he's going to be And then another character comes in and kind of presents a potential identity for him. And I think once we get through this crisis, which I think is rapidly kind of being solved, I think they're going to start bringing in more characters. So I think we should focus on all the characters. But Hero is being presented as the protagonist. Yeah, it's literally like the rest of the squad have had screen time, but not a whole lot of agency uh, on their own. They just kind of exist to like describe hero and zero Two, the mm-hmm. other main protagonist for the show. The first episode opens up with hero having just failed zero two has come into this, this city for, some reason, either because she's supposed to be there for the the presentation of the new parasites or there's some sort of threat or something. Doesn't matter. She is here. Her and Hero meet and they have an instant connection. But she's a really dangerous pistol pilot because she has some of this monstrous blood in her. Mm-hmm. And... Maybe because of that, maybe other reasons, it's unclear. People who partner with her die after, I think they said it's three yep. three times they pilot with her. And they just have this weird connection, like right off the bat. They are just like drawn to each other. You could say it's romantic. You could say it's destiny. It's what It's whatever. They're drawn to each other. And so I think Hero is placing his identity now in zero two and he's kind of rewarded because they immediately get put in a situation where they have to pilot together and he seems to be okay and he's able to sync with her in a way he wasn't in his test yeah and so now he's getting his dream back he gets to be a parasite but not really because nobody's really letting him pilot with her. And so he becomes obsessed 
with trying to pilot with her again. And she reciprocates. She's all about it. Like, Zero Two is just like, she calls him Darling. This is why the show is called Darling. Yes. (laughs) She calls him her darling, and she is equally obsessed with him. They are trying to partner together. Yeah, and kind of like you were saying, so the first couple of episodes, really, with him being totally obsessed with this idea, just let me pilot with her, like, this is my last shot kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, is a lot of his kind of squad mates really being hesitant with the idea because they all have this um, this idea about who Zero Two is because they've heard of her, they call her the partner killer, partner killer um, and there's all these rumors, and the first time that he pilots with her on this like emergency claxosaur kind of attack. He is unconscious the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so all of his squad, well, at least some of his squad mates are like, you didn't actually pilot. You were unconscious. She was doing all the work and she was probably doing her dark magic on you. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so it's him trying to convince his friends, like whatever, like, just let me do it and I can show you. Uh, and arguing with the organization, like, let put me in, coach, mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. But I guess the one thing about that initial piloting session that was probably the instigator for his, um, like, identity switch in that way is that before they start the battle and before they synchronize she kisses him which is something he had no reference for yeah not a word for it not an understanding of the actual physical action uh, or anything like that and uh so i guess like the rest of the show or the rest of these episodes he's also obsessed with the idea that this new thing he's experienced is like somehow the specifically with zero two or whatever he tries with other pilots but um one other pilot he's not like going around trying to kiss people (laughs) and and i guess that's where some of the like sexual part of this starts Mm -hmm. to become uncovered because the first time you you don't see the first battle because he's unconscious so they don't show it happening yeah um the first time you see a mock battle happen in later episode is when you see the visual representation of them being pilots in these mechs. Mm-hmm. So this is the part that gets uncomfortable, is that the girls are in the front, so it's like a two-person co- cockpit, and the girls are in the front, and they are on all fours, essentially. Yeah. They're kind of like, their arms are kind of, I'm going to say, plugged into part of the machine and their knees are kind of like straddling. Like if you were to ride really low on like a motorcycle or something. Yeah. So they're connected in and the boys are sitting behind them kind of upright. It's a very sexual looking scene and their hands are holding the boys hands are holding these handles that come off of the girl's hips. Yeah. So there that is. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's blatant sexual positioning. Mm-hmm. Um and the entire dialogue of the the pilots is also very sexualized. Yeah, they have this synchronization that happens. Which is probably common in, in like mech anime where there's two pilots, like right. any of that kind of stuff. Right. So with something like Pacific Rim, it was about the mental synchronization that happened, them going into each other's minds and being able to like see each other's thoughts, under like see each other's memories. Mm-hmm. That is not this. That is not this at all. All the language that they use when they talk about synchronizing is physical. Yeah. They talk about like, I feel you inside of me. Yes. And <laughs> Well, and there's physical responses when the connections are made. Especially on the girls' end. Like, the boy, 
if this isn't enough, like, analogy for for things. Like, the boys don't seem to have the like, same... This is great. This is working fine. <laughs> yeah, they're like, this feels awesome. And the girls are... A lot of them are struggling. Like, they're having physical discomfort or it's like a lot on them to get into the like the mental space partially because like their faces are on the robot they sync with the robot in a way that the boys do not yeah which i think leads all the more to like the rumors that zero two can pilot one on her own Mm -hmm. is like she is generating all of that energy Mm -hmm. i mean it it gets extremely blatant at certain points. Like, yeah. you're having a problem back there? Mm-hmm. Can't keep the connection up? You know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, great job on the English dub, by the way. It comes <laughs> across just fine. Yeah, we got it. Um, and and I had kind of alluded to this earlier, but like, when, he, when Hero gets into a mock battle where they're saying, okay, let's try this again. You failed last time, but... Maybe we can push you into the next step. With a different partner, because his original partner got injured in an unrelated thing. So she's in a hospital. I don't know that we'll ever see her again. They said she'll live. So he partners with Zero Two, is successful. And so they're like, oh, maybe, maybe you just need a different partner. Yeah. And so one of the other girls, who's actually like a co-captain of the squadron who clearly has a thing for Hero. She volunteers to try and be his partner. Right. Yeah, the the kids, like, friendships are kind of strange in that to a certain degree they, you know, they were all born into this and have been a squad for a long time, it seems. But Ichigo, this this girl who is the kind of leader of the squad... She and Hero and, like, one or two other people have clearly had, like, a long-term friendship, like, mm-hmm. born at the same time. They even share, like, close numbers. Yes. Um, where I think Hero is 16 mm-hmm. and Ichigo is 15. Mm. And so they're, they're adjacent numbers, which they haven't said what the numbers mean, but we're assuming it's, like, when they entered into this program or were created or whatever. Something. Um, and in fact, a lot of the, the kids talk of like teen numbers being like, some are, are really, oh, whatever, you know, teens, teens are all the same. <laughs> uh, and some like revere them as like the originals, the whatevers. It could be aptitude. Yeah. That could, because when zero two comes onto the scene, they're like, what the heck is up with the single digit number? That's yeah. crazy. Like, what does that mean? So maybe it's like how they scored on some sort of aptitude that they did at some point. Right. Because that would also maybe explain the prodigy thing. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Mm. Um, and so anyway, Ichigo is like primed for being a good match with Hero mm-hmm. in that they have this long-term friendship. She has feelings for him, clearly. Um, unknown about the other direction. No, Pro- it's not reciprocated. <laughs> yeah, doesn't seem to be. <laughs> well, it's, at least as soon as Zero Two shows right. up, no interest. Yeah. But, like, that's also more or less confirmed by their mock session doesn't go super well. Like, they, they achieve... chemistry issues. Yes, they, they achieve synchronization for... A moment, mm-hmm. um, but um, can't consistently fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think a lot of tension that we're going to see, and we've already started to see, is between Ichigo and Zero Two. Because they are both clearly drawn to Hero, there's obviously this sort of duality between them. Mm-hmm. And Zero Two knows right off the bat that Ichigo has a thing for Hero. And she is kind of cruel about it because she knows that Hero is not into Ichigo at all. And 
this is something about Zero's to Zero Two's personality that gets kind of reinforced by how everyone around her treats her. Is they're kind of pretending like she's human, but they very clearly treat her like she's a monster. Right. And a lot of times when we see this sort of dynamic in shows, not even just anime, but any sort of othering of people, we see like this callous personality as like a way that they cover up their like trauma and their insecurity because it's supposed to be like an, usually it's an allegory for like immigrants or, um, or racial differences or anything like that. I don't think that's what they're doing here. I really think that this is sort of a nature versus nurture kind of conversation that they're Mm -hmm. having and that we're going to see the nurture part of zero two of people treated her like a monster and she became that right she became callous she became heartless she seems to not really care the fact that she kills other like partners like other pilots and at first I thought, oh, maybe she's like hiding the fact that she hates that. But I don't think she does. I think she has been trained to think this is just what I am. Right. And I think her dynamic is going to be her and Hero kind of making each other better and worse. Like I think Hero's going to help her find some semblance of humanity. But I think she's going to affect Hero in a way that kind of makes him lose his. Right. And that's going to be really interesting to see because I think they'll still end up being the protagonist. I don't think that we're going to switch and like they're going to become evil Yeah, because they like what they do. They like fighting the monsters. They're on that team. I don't think they're going to like flip and become the bad guys. They were the monsters all along. Yeah, I don't (laughs) think it'll be that. But I do think we'll start to see hero become a little more monstrous. I think we'll see Zero Two become a little more human. And I think it'll be interesting to see how this affects everybody else in the group. How are they going to become a little more human? How are the, you know, the kids who are really mean and cruel and reckless, how are they going to start being more kind? And then flip the people like Ichigo who are very self-conscious, who are very insecure, how are they going to start being a little stronger? How are they going to start like taking up their own space? I think there's also just like some personality stuff about those three characters, uh, Hero, Zero Two, and Ichigo. Ichigo is, uh, the best way I can describe her is utilitarian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's every, the same word I used. Everything she does is about practicality and effectiveness and um, so, like, she volunteers to do the mock battle with Hero because I have the best chance. I'm worried about his safety with anyone else. I'm the captain. Yeah. It's my responsibility. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll take the the burden of this and uh, volunteers to do that. And then, you know, they're having trouble during the battle. And he's like, maybe you should kiss me because that's what Zero <laughs> Two did. And she's like... Fine, if that's what it takes to Mm -hmm. make this work, let's do that weird thing you just described to me. Right. And so her very utilitarian kind of personality of growing up seemingly like a, you know, military child kind of thing uh, versus Zero Two who blows in and her outlook on everything is like, this is fun and exciting and we're just going to... Uh, you know, rebel against authority. She's impulsive. And, and yeah. And emotional and passionate. It's the we'll do We'll do what gets the job done by breaking the rules, not mm-hmm. following the rules. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what immediately draws them personality-wise to each other and why he seems to be not interested in Ichigo because right. they're... I don't know if they have an age at this point. They're probably 16. They're like 14. Yeah, 14 to 16 is like the average yeah. anime age. <laughs> um, like if he's been doing this 14 years or whatever, and the piloting thing isn't working out for him up to this point, 
and the like routine and the training and the exercises and everything aren't doing the trick. Zero Two seems to be the only thing that breaks the mold for him and is going to let him kind of adopt the identity that he's looking for. And I don't think we should go into too much depth with the other kids that are in this squadron just because we don't have the time. But there are 10 characters in this sort of squadron with Hero and Zero Two not officially being a part of the squad. So there's eight kids, four pairs total. And I personally have some kids that I am super not into because they're just sort of annoying. Zerome. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, and Code 666 for a reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Subtle guys. Mm-hmm. And some of them are kind of bullying for no apparent reason. Um, Mitsuru is is just sort of, his personality right now is jealous. Yeah. And the like I said, the way this show is presented, if you look at any of the promo materials, if you look at how certain things are positioned in terms of like how everyone is sitting, it's, it's all very equal. I think they really do want to set up that there is going to be more emphasis on more of these kids. We just haven't gotten to see that yet. I have one character that I really want to see more of. Uh-huh. Uh, her name is Kokoro, and I love her. She's barely been on. I think she's spoken like once or twice. But she reminds me of Mugi from K-On, who's like one of my favorite characters of all time. It's very strong Samugi vibes. Yes. And I am looking forward to see her dynamic. Because like I said, all these personalities have started to come out a little bit in different ways. But I think now, by the end of episode four, we've kind of solved a little bit of Hero's identity crisis. Not completely solved, but at least there's a means for him to fulfill his identity as a pilot or parasite. And I think now we'll get to focus on some of the other characters. So I need some more Kokoro. Yeah, for sure. I guess to wrap up all the character and story kind of discussion. We end the four episodes basically with Zero Two is about to be shipped back to her special squad. The front lines they said she was going back to. Um, And Hero throws a fit and, you know, gives a rousing speech that convinces her, okay, I guess he is into the breaking authority kind of thing. (laughs) We'll do this. And so she... um, she breaks out and forcibly enters the mech that um, she is paired with or assigned to or whatever. They kind of each have special mechs yeah. that look like the girls that are piloting them. And uh, she drags Hero in with her. And we do end these episodes with Hero and Zero Two piloting the mech. The Franks. Uh, effectively, he doesn't die. He doesn't pass out, not injured. And we've seen other pilots be immediately injured with her. Yeah. And he seems to be fine. Yeah. After more or less two rides. Right. And uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about production. We're in the home stretch now. Settle in for a short break and we'll be right back with more anime. Welcome back to the show. All right, Kayla, would you like to start our discussion on the production elements of Darling and the Franks? I would. So my history with Studio Trigger, who's the the animating studio for, for the show, has all been 
because of you. I have only ever watched any Studio Trigger thing because of you. Not because I wasn't interested in them. I just didn't know about them. And I do have a bias. I really like Studio Trigger's animation style. I really love the colors that they tend to use. This show doesn't have as much of the styling as a lot of Studio Trigger shows do. Uh, Something in particular that I've noted is that Studio Trigger likes to use pastels in a way that most animes do not. A lot of animes do not use those kind of neon colors. They use very flat, matte, kind of primary colors. And... You know, if you think of shows or, you know, even some of the the movies that they've done, like Promare is a really good example of them using those contrasting like primary colors with one character and then these really interesting kind of neon pastel colors. It's a really cool way to show like the difference, the differences between characters without it being like this one's red and this one's blue. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. So this show doesn't do as much of that, which is kind of a bummer. They do stick to more muted colors, like in more traditional anime. But there's this one scene I really want to talk about. It is something I've been noticing a lot with Studio Trigger is they really like to put their characters in really interesting environments. They really Mm -hmm. pay attention to environments. And it's not in this like hyper detailed sort of way. It's usually in scale. They really like to show you that the character that's being presented is having to carry like this big burden. That's a lot of their shows is that this character is carrying the burden of humanity or society or whoever it is, whoever they're fighting for on their shoulders on their own. And so what they'll do is they'll show the character against this really huge building Mm -hmm. or monument or something, something that's larger than life. And this show did that pretty much in episode one or two with the kids and not with Hero, which is why I think the kids are going to be emphasized as well is because they also are being presented as carrying the weight of humanity. This scene is so cinematic in a way that I don't see in a lot of anime that they are showing you instead of telling you. Right. And like I said, it's just not something I see in animation. They don't tend to play those tricks with the camera the way that more traditional filmmaking would do. Yeah. There is definitely a a certain amount of like lineage with Trigger that um, I I think to a certain degree, the studio is kind of synonymous with one of its founders, uh, Hiroyuki Imaishi. And um, I I believe he's the guy who like the Gurren Lagann guy who split off from Gainax to found Trigger and then did Kill a Kill and Premiere and that one episode from Star Wars Visions and, and like which was very good. Go watch that. And a couple of like shorts and, and things too, but all with that very distinct kind of character design and art style. And um, a few of them have been kind of influenced by that. Uh, I'd say like Little Witch Academia and BNA, or they kind of share some of those mm-hmm. traits. And it's it's clear that like the animation team has had sort of a broad influence towards that direction. Uh, but this one definitely doesn't share the same kind of character designs. It really feels like a collaborative work in the sense that the characters kind of feel like A1 Pictures characters yeah. to a certain degree. Um, and I mean, A1 has done tons of shows, uh, just untold numbers. <laughs> uh, but even recently, Magic Kaito, Persona 4, The Animation, Idol Master, Asterix War, Kaguya-sama... Um, are all ones that we've watched uh, for Animonday. Which are all wildly different from each other. Yeah. And so I think it's it's a really interesting animation and kind of character design collaborative work to bring these two studios together for this project, especially since it doesn't have source material. 
This is all original work that was created specifically for this 24 episode thing. Mm -hmm. And then it was done. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think they really kind of created something that looks visually interesting for, um, you know, that project. Something that I think this studio has done really well is that when they have multiple characters that they want you to be able to distinguish, they do a really good job of making interesting, realistic looking characters that are easily told apart. And in this show, unlike a lot of shows, most of the characters are pretty normal looking. They have normal looking hair. None of them have really wild hairstyles except for Zero Two. And that is explained by the fact that she has this non-human blood type in her yeah wor worth mentioning i guess from her character design it is a plot element that she has horns yes um and like vibrant pink hair and wears red all the time and things and like that she has like these sort of i'm gonna say reptilian looking eyes that's the best way i can describe them yeah everyone else looks very human and we don't really have unusual hair colors. There's not like greens and blues and and all of that to tell them all apart. And yet, I can pretty much remember everyone's faces, everyone's hairstyles, their body types. There's quite a bit of diversity in the characters. And I think that helps in a group cast. And I think... It, again, leans towards the idea that each of these characters are going to matter. Yeah. Because if they were throwaway people, they'd they'd kind of just blend into the background, and they they certainly don't. And that's even despite the fact that for the majority of the show, they all wear the same uniform. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually found the uniform designs interesting. It's more or less like a gray suit material even with buttoning that kind of looks like a I, I guess sort of like a military uniform uh, like if you went to a military prep school yeah but like the the specific color gray color of the suit material with the white undershirt and everything it's like this is a suit i would wear <laughs> except that for some reason like the boys wear pants that come down to their knees or like right above their knees it's a prep school thing yeah um, and the girls kind of wear a similar material in a, you know, like knee length dress. Mm -hmm. But then they have like, I don't I don't know what to describe them as, as an ascot almost. It's the studio trigger star that they have in mm -hmm. everything. <laughs> but it is, uh, it is, it's like a red something on their neckline. Mm -hmm. But it is two different shapes. Mm. It is a... Uh, like an upside down Y shape mm. for the boys and an X for the girls. Mm -hmm. So yes, it does have the very like it's their chromosomes. Yeah, the yes, X and exactly. Y chromosomes. Yes, um, <laughs> just really piling just on, just leaning that. into it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but while still sharing, like you said, that very characteristic star shape that you see from Trigger stuff. Yeah, I guess the last thing I'll talk about for. Production stuff, um, aside the music is terrible. The music stinks. <laughs> it's really dull and unmemorable, and the opening theme is kind of terrible. I literally did not remember it. I explicitly <laughs> thought about it during the show and was like, all of this stinks. <laughs> Unremarkable. Um, I think it is worth talking briefly about the mech designs, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the Franks themselves, most of them, when they, we don't really see much of their like, I don't know, their unpiloted their, versions. Yeah, their normal kind of look. They take on the true form when both pilots are working in them. Most of them have a very like slender, feminine appearance, mm -hmm. very humanoid, like mm -hmm. almost. You know, Almost uncanny, uncanny valley sort of cartoonish <laughs> look to them. Yeah, it's more like it's almost like Astro Boy kind of robot, like not 
not like Gundam. That's way too many angles. This is a lot of round shapes in a robot. Like it's making me think of my life as a teenage robot kind of robots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, specifically Sterlizia, which is the one that Zero Two pilots mm-hmm. and Hero joins. Um, it's primarily white. It has red and yellow accents. It has a large horn, uh, kind of indicative of its pilots. Uh, broad shoulder armor, almost like these weird rabbit ears coming off the back. And one thing I noted about a couple of them, Sterlizia is one, almost looks like it's wearing ballet shoes. Mm-hmm. Well, they even have that kind of stance when they're, there's one point where they're kind of flying across the desert and the way that they're positioning is a ballet stance. It's kind of like pointed toes and one leg is kind of bent into the other. It's not like a flying stance. It very much looks looks like a, a ballet right. position. There's like one that is probably the most feminine. It's pink. It has pigtails. It has like striped stockings that it's wearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a, a cool purple one that looks like a bird. Yes. Uh, it has like wing arms that look like feathers that are made of, you know. Talk about Kokoro's. Hers is adorable. Yes, Kokoro's is the most unique of the mechs. It is large. It's like almost bell-shaped, mm-hmm. um, and it's totally black. All the other ones have kind of a white base, and it has green, like vibrant green accents, and it's wearing what I can describe as like a, a Pope hat almost. Yeah, it, kinda, it, yeah, it, it looks like a cleric's hat. It looks like, or a, like a, a nun or yeah, something, yeah. yeah. And it very, yeah, big, like flowy sort of looking dress, mm-hmm. Um and it carries like an artillery that is yeah. almost twice its height. <laughs> yeah, it's like a bazooka gun looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's great. Very disconcerting to see these for the first time. <laughs> but um, the more they've kind of actually put them into action in uh, you know, fights and mock battles or whatever, I think they're pretty interesting designs. And it's interesting that they each have different weaponry and fighting styles so like kokoro's has the the bazooka looking weapon uh the one with the pigtail she has like claws that come out yeah and even zero twos her fronks can turn very animalistic which is and she has like a kind of like a lance thing that she uses like a pole arm all right well to start wrapping things up because this has been one of our longer discussions <laughs> um my general thoughts on the show so far and all of this is is under sort of the acknowledgement that the show seems to be holding a lot of its cards right now Uh, I think it has done a good job of kind of ramping things up in four episodes and drawing your attention, getting you interested in what they're setting up without actually really telling you much of anything. Um, Mostly just that it seems like from here there are so many different directions they could go. It's hard to predict exactly how it's going to end up. It's also very difficult to come into this show a few years late having a cultural knowledge of it and constantly seeing it on the internet that has potentially clouded some of my judgment to a certain degree Mm. not necessarily positively or negatively i know a lot more than i should at this point (laughs) and so i'm trying to avoid like predicting this or that but my general understanding is that compared to something that you could easily see in the lineage of Darling in the Franks, like Evangelion is kind of a direct line from the 90s to now. 
you know, from Gainax to Trigger to whoever is working on this now, there might be people who worked on Evangelion. I haven't looked at the whole cast list or anything. My general understanding of the show is that this is much more of a kind of optimistic show Mm. with a more kind of positive, I don't, you know, I don't know specifically like the ending or anything, but generally the vibe is... It can't get much more bleak (laughs) than... (laughs) original Evangelion's <laughs> ending. Then congratulations, Shinji. Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems to be more than anything a coming-of-age story. Mm-hmm. And it is very much kind of like we've talked about a, you know, from the moment Hiro learns what a kiss is because they've been kind of sheltered in this particular way and then them trying to figure out how to be humans versus Mm -hmm. whatever zero two is Mm -hmm. and how to be okay with each other despite differences and all of that. Like that's kind of the focus that I see this show moving towards, which to me puts it in more of a like, what if it was Evangelion, but it was actually fully (laughs) coolie. Right, right, right. Which sounds like my favorite thing in the world. Right. Um, so I I think there are some interesting things happening. I I haven't decided if all the innuendo is like necessary for mm-hmm. that purpose, mm-hmm. or if we could have totally done without all of that. Sure, we probably could uh, if I had to guess. <laughs> but um, that that's kind of the direction I'm hoping it goes. More in the like, what is it like to grow up and to mm-hmm figure out how to function in this weird society. I think for me, I had the opposite experience. Maybe it's because I don't, I I don't internet very much. And so I did not have a reference for this show at all. Yeah. The first time I really understood or heard or learned anything about it was when we rolled it. And then other people promptly decided to talk to me about it. Um, so I had no frame of reference going in. I think for me, and this might be because of my profession, because of the kind of stuff I work with all the time, this is uncomfortable for me to watch. It is uncomfortable for me to watch people in clearly, I don't want to necessarily say forced, coerced positions of I don't know what this is. I don't know like why it feels the way it does in my body, but it just does. And this is my life. Like to me in my real world, that's trauma. (laughs) That's trauma that I work with people on all the time and I help them navigate through. And then to layer on the fact that these are very clearly children. It is not, You know, a lot of people will talk about, like, the way that anime will, like, sexualize teenagers, especially, because a lot of shows tend to be about teenagers. The show very clearly makes them look like children. They aren't, they aren't designed to look like adults who are, who are in, you know, called teenagers. They're very much children. And so this is not for the faint of heart. The show very much can be a trigger for for people who have these sort of issues, for sure. I I don't think that that has to be bad. In the same way that there are other shows that make me very uncomfortable, but are really good shows. Like Made in Abyss is a show that makes me wildly uncomfortable. But it's a really good show. <laughs> and I think sometimes that does need to be there, that you do need to be uncomfortable to have those kind of conversations of at what cost. And I think that question is going to be asked a lot. I think that happens, that happened in like the Ava, that was a question that was asked a lot, at what cost? That was the question Shinji was asking a lot, is, you know, at what cost of my childhood, of my lack of parenting, of, you know, losing the people I've lost? Like, when is it enough? And this is going to ask the same thing. At what cost is it going to be worth it? 
And I think if you go in a more optimistic way, then it won't end the end. Then it won't end in the congratulations, Shinji, existential <laughs> dread ending of Evangelion. It might actually answer that question that there is a cost that is worth this discomfort, that is worth this sacrifice. That doesn't make it easier to tolerate. Yeah. So this is definitely not something that you should watch if you have these specific traumas or triggers in your life because that question at what cost is it might not be worth the cost for you. Right. All right. So all of that said, would you watch more of this? So like I said, it is uncomfortable for me to watch. I do think that there are really interesting characters. I think this story is going to actually focus more on the characters than on these monster battles. And that is right up my alley. I super love good character development. I love group dynamics. I think this could be really interesting. So I'm going to say yes. We'll see how much I can. (laughs) Hopefully I can stomach whatever is yet to come. Hopefully it doesn't go much beyond what I've seen. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Likewise, I'm going to say yes for similar sorts of reasons. Um, I, I mean, we've said on the show, like we have very limited overall knowledge of Mecca as a genre. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of these tropes, we don't have a lot of language for, we don't have a show to point to specifically to say, well, you know, this iteration of Gundam or whatever has been doing this for decades or whatever. It's a lot of Avo references for us. Yeah, we have Evangelion. We have like some of the garbage that we've rolled on <laughs> on Anime Monday before. Yeah, robot notes. Um, robotics notes. Yeah, and uh, and so I I think to me this feels different enough that it's it's much more interesting and engaging for me. Um. Very character focused, which I think is going to be either what kills this show or, uh, you know, makes it kind of a a longstanding sort of entry in the genre. Uh, And based on, like I said, that cultural knowledge, I, I think, um, I think there's, there's got to be something there to it. So I'm, I'm hopeful for it. Hooray. Hooray. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit our website at anamonday.moe. That's anamonday.moe. And you can send us questions and comments to podcast at anamonday.moe. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our username is anamondaycast. And you can find links for that on our website. If you are interested in rolling your own random anime, feel free to check out our websites and specifically at anamonday.moe slash random, where you can use the custom randomizer that we've built for our show. Thank you finally to C2A for providing the intro and outro music for our show, which come from the Senpai EPs available on Bandcamp and other major streaming services. It is time to roll. It is time. Let's do that. Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> Our anime for the week is Noragami. Oh. Yeah. Okay. We watched this like a few months ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Easy peasy. Just have to erase it all. Start if over. If we just keep recording right now, <laughs> we can just do the episode. No. <laughs> no. We will rewatch it. Okay. I'm going to take some notes. Yes. Well, here we go. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us this week. We will see you in two weeks. And uh, yeah, we hope you um, enjoyed the episode. Sorry it went long. (laughs) One day we will either decide that this is long form or we will shorten it back up. (laughs) Yeah. One of those. Maybe. All right. We will see you next time. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) bye. Fine.
sorry. <laughs> it was a very long conversation for. And have a lot of uh, outtakes fodder. Yeah, so. <laughs> there you go. Okay. You can just spread this over the next few weeks. <laughs> I, I do have a backlog of <laughs> do you really? in case an episode doesn't have anything. Oh, in case we're not funny. Is that what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.